0: Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. This show is brought to you by Pariah Pickups, what you want, what you need, what you love. Check them out at pariahpickups.com. And if you want to support the No Sleep Till Sudbury podcast on Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash brentjensenmusic for details. All right, today I want to talk to you about Roger Waters, former bassist and frontman of Pink Floyd. I thought this may be an interesting topic because I recently saw Waters live on the Toronto stop of this current This Is Not A Drill tour, and it unexpectedly got me thinking about some things, loosely related to the ideas I touched on with Kiss and Metallica's James Hetfield in recent No Sleep Till Sudbury episodes. That being the fact that we're seeing these icons in an entirely new light today than we did previously. Possibly partly because not only are they approaching the ends of their careers, but in some cases, they're approaching the ends of their lives. So last October, I got a text from one of the sons of my good friends Nancy Joe Ramsey and Mark Gratoli up in Sudbury, asking if I wanted to join he and Mark in seeing Roger Waters the following July. Tickets had just gone on sale for his Toronto show. I had only been a casual Pink Floyd fan, and while I knew Waters had left the band sometime in the 80s and launched a solo career, I didn't know a lot about it, and I knew even less about the music that he was putting out. I did know, however, about the production values of Pink Floyd slash Roger Waters' show, and I thought it would be a good hang with friends I don't see often. So I plunked down my 270 bucks, and I put the event in my calendar. And I'm going to tell you, I'm very, very glad that I did. Now, I admit that I had my preconceptions going into the show. The primary of those being that Roger Waters was a crusty curmudgeon. The villain likely responsible for the Pink Floyd breakup and subsequent acrimony that would follow. It didn't help when I noticed that he bills himself in the promotional materials of his current This Is Not A Drill tour as the creative genius of Pink Floyd. That's a very bold statement to make, and one that can kind of make you look like a bit of a jerk, regardless of how much you know about Pink Floyd or even whether or not it's true. I assumed the show that I was about to see would be put on by a smug, egotistical old rock star who, at age 78, I did know that, was probably just cashing in on past glories. There would probably be very little interaction with the crowd, and while the show would be visually and sonically entertaining, it would likely be devoid of any kind of significant emotionality. On our way into the venue, I smirked to myself after seeing the merch stance. One thing I did know about Waters and Pink Floyd was that they were fierce anti-capitalists. The song Money played in my head as I wondered how many people were going to pay $200 for a a this-is-not-a-drill tour jacket. And just after we took our seats, a message appeared on the large screen above the stage, positioned in the middle of the arena as Waters had chosen to perform in the round. The message read, If you're one of those I-love-pink-Floyd-but-I-can't-stand-Roger's-politics people, you might do well to fuck off to the bar right now. Once the show started, the production value was astonishing. The the in-the-round stage appeared to have this massive crucifix on it, 20 feet high and probably a few hundred feet across. It was a high-definition video screen that rose up above the stage, revealing a grand piano, drums, and the musicians inside. And once it had risen up, it displayed these incredible images that were in sync with the set list for the duration of the show. And one thing I've always credited Pink Floyd with, regardless of whether you like them or not, is their ability to establish a mood. And Waters certainly did that by opening with a darker, more morose version of Comfortably Numb. After that tune and a couple of other Pink Floyd hits, it was time for Waters to address the crowd, should he choose to do so, of course. And he did, much more warmly than I expected him to. You know, artists always say that bit, it's great to be back in whatever city they're in that night. And you know that they could care less. I didn't get that from Waters. He spoke fondly of Toronto, saying that it was a special city to him, and it always had been since he was very young. He patted his chest as he described how truly happy he was to be here, and he appeared to choke up a little bit as the crowd roared their approval. He seemed genuinely appreciative, he really did, and I wasn't expecting that. Now there were, of course, a lot of aggressive and scathing political messages, compliments of the video monitors and from Waters himself, but his fondness of Canada softened that rage he clearly felt over a... Received lack of human rights at the hands of government. I wondered how this show would be received in some parts of the U.S., as at one point images of each U.S. president from Ronald Reagan forward were displayed, stamped with war criminal tags and noting their individual crimes against humanity. George W. Bush was said to have lied about weapons of mass destruction in order to kill people. Barack Obama ordered drone strikes that made him a mass murderer. Even old Joe Biden was included in this presidential murderer's row. His byline was, just getting started. And at this point, I would normally have considered taking that advice Waters had suggested about the bar shortly before the show started. But he didn't just come across as that angry old man yelling at clouds. There was also a a wistfulness. There was a sentimentality and a vulnerability about it all. One of my favorite parts of the show was the story that unfolded on the screens during this musical interlude that was told from Waters' perspective involving his former Pink Floyd bandmate, Sid Barrett. The story went that Waters and Sid had taken the train to a music festival as young teenagers in the early 60s, and they saw a band that both found remarkable enough to influence them into a pact that they made with each other on the train home following the festival. The pact was to form their own band, the band that compelled them to do it. They called themselves the Rolling Stones. Waters and Barrett had been childhood friends and schoolmates from a young age, and Waters went on to intimately describe the early days of Pink Floyd alongside Barrett, amidst early photos of the band playing on the monitors, through Barrett's mental health challenges, dismissal from the band, and eventually... Barrett's death. Now Waters even offered a pretty jarring description of an extended episode he himself had, with the possibility of losing his mind during Pink Floyd's early stages. Waters' final word on Barrett to conclude this very personal segment of the show, starkly projected in black and white on those massive screens above, was, When we lose those we love, it can serve to remind us that this is not a drill. Again, I certainly was not expecting this level of vulnerability from Roger Waters, but I appreciated it. And I started to re-examine my perception of him and what he was about. That passage regarding Sid Barrett reminded me of Bruce Springsteen's recent Broadway show, where he looked back on his life with this grim honesty that periodically actually made me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Roger Waters is 78 years old, and like Springsteen, he's staring his own mortality in the face, like he never has before. And as a result, he seemed humble enough to celebrate the affection this crowd was showing him. And for me, that was the difference. During the last number of the evening, Pink Floyd's outside the wall the band collapsed around Waters, seated at the piano, and they eventually formed a line in marching off the stage, one by one, as they continued to play. They finished the song backstage, standing in a circle, visible only on the video monitors, and with Waters smiling a massive smile. The song ended abruptly, and all the monitors went black when it did. And then they displayed a silent, black-and-white message that read, Thank you, Toronto, to which the crowd went wild. And you know, it really did feel like there was reciprocation of emotion. I'm usually pretty skeptical when it comes to that stuff, because oftentimes it can be less than sincere. Yes, Roger Waters is angry, but does that anger just come from a concern that he has about the direction he sees civilization going, and an impatience that stems from his perception that it's just getting worse. That's a murky consideration. And got a little murkier last week when Rogers was interviewed by a reporter from a Toronto newspaper about his tour. During the interview, which took place several days after Waters had played both Toronto shows, Waters questioned the reporter why he nor any other Toronto news outlets reviewed either of his concerts. The reporter from Toronto's Globe and Mail newspaper responded, Your show wasn't the biggest in town that night. Also in town on July 8, the first night of Waters' Toronto tour stop, was popular singer-songwriter and Toronto native, The Weeknd. He was scheduled to play a couple blocks away, but his show was cancelled due to a Canada-wide telecommunications network service outage. Waters' show was not cancelled, and it went on as scheduled. So in this interview, Waters stressed that he played two concerts and The weekend's one concert was cancelled. Would it not have been possible to review his show One Night and my show The Second Night? Waters asked. I have no idea what or who The weekend is because I don't listen to a lot of music, and I have nothing against him. I'm not trying to make this a personal attack. I'm just saying it seemed odd, Waters said. And then, Waters said something that would make headlines in papers across North America and likely beyond. He said with all due respect to The weekend or Drake or any of them, I am far, far, far more important than any of them will ever be however many billions of streams they've got. There's stuff going on here that is fundamentally important to all of our lives. Now, Had I read that without seeing the show, and as a result seeing Waters in an entirely new light, I wouldn't have been terribly surprised. Quite frankly, it's not something I would have ever said, but then again, I don't know if as an interviewer I would have made that statement about Waters not being the biggest show in town that night, even if it were technically true in any capacity. You just know nothing good is going to come of that, especially with someone as outspoken as Roger Waters. Waters has previously mentioned in interviews that one of his favorite things about being a solo artist is that Pink Floyd often held him back from telling the truth. Telling the truth and being completely forthright, regardless of his audience, is something that Waters has always been very happy to do. So it's a safe bet that Waters is going to be completely up front with us relative to his opinions, and he was. He spoke his truth. Of course, this incident gives rise to that prickly distinction that exists on a much larger scale between the old and the new. The boomers versus the Gen Zs. The has-beens versus the up-and-comers. The past versus the now Will someone like Drake be remembered 50 or 60 years from now? Will he carry the same cultural heft over time that Pink Floyd does? You know, I've always believed that our personal truths and our opinions are our own. They begin and they end within our individual selves, and we're entitled to them. And provided they are informed by fact, logic, and reason, we can be proud to have them. Past that, I don't care much for the squabbling that will inevitably result from this sort of incident because it never seems to amount to a substantial gain of any kind. I feel like there was a gain involved for me here, however. I wouldn't have paid almost $300 to see Roger Waters if not for the invitation to spend time with valued friends. But I'm going to tell you something. I feel incredibly lucky for it. And infinitely wiser, too. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brian Jensen. Till next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Suffering, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon worldwide.